Hello and welcome to Jesuitical, a podcast by the young, hip, and lay editors of American Media. That lay part means we aren't Jesuits, but we work with them. Join us each week for a smart Catholic take on faith, culture, and the news, often over drinks. I'm Ashley McKinless, and I am flying solo this week. Uh, Zach Davis, my co-host, is currently helping to lead America Media's pilgrimage in the Holy Land. Uh, so we do not have any Catholic news of the week um, for you on this episode, uh, but we do have Signs of My Times, the part of the show where I give you life updates. <laughs> it is uh, the first full week of Lent, so it's been seven days since I've had sweets or alcohol, and I have to say I'm feeling pretty good. And I know Lent is not supposed to just be about uh, my own personal diet plan, so I have added some spiritual practices as well. I've been waking up a little earlier and reading the uh, daily readings every morning, and then at lunchtime, uh, walking over to St. Patrick's Cathedral for a little bit of quiet prayer time, um, and that's been really nice. So I would recommend, you know, just taking a little bit more time out of your day during this season uh, to pray and find some quiet. In other news, my sister is um, expecting her first child, as I have mentioned before on the show, and her due date is actually this Thursday, March 5th. So by the time this drops, she I could be an aunt, which would be very exciting. Um, if not, Jackie, if you're listening to this and you're in labor, stop listening and focus on what you're doing. <laughs> um, but seriously, I'm very excited, and I hope you can all join me in praying for my sister's healthy and safe delivery. Um, now for our guest this week. I, a couple weeks ago, talked with Father George Williams. He's a Jesuit and the chaplain of San Quentin State Prison. So Father George uh, is the Catholic chaplain at this huge prison. There are uh, some like 3,000 inmates, and he specifically works with the people on death row. Um, So it's a really spiritually, uh, emotionally challenging job. And I was so impressed by George's um, dedication to this difficult work, but also his he has a great sense of humor, and he's able to um, really see the the hope that these people still have, even in the darkest of circumstances. Um, and he speaks really beautifully about that. And funnily enough, although I'm the one interviewing George this week, uh, Zach wasn't there. George is now in the Holy Land with Zach. Uh, He is a good friend of Father James Martin, our colleague, who leads these pilgrimages, and he's gone on these trips for the past five years. So they are traveling through um, from Galilee to Jerusalem, and we're very excited to have a memo from Zach. He, he's on the ground in Tr- Jerusalem today, uh, and he has a very interesting story from there. So stick around for this memo, and then we'll have the interview with Father George Williams. Hey, Jesuitical. It's Zach. We just spent like four days in Galilee, and now we got to Jerusalem uh, just today. And I wanted to let you guys know that I'm praying for you. Um, I've been thinking a lot about uh, church communities and Jesus's community and his friends. Um, And I'm really grateful for this podcast community. And so that's been on my mind as we've been going about looking at all the stuff that Jesus has done in this place. Um, If I might, if you'll bear with me, I want to offer one story. I just had the craziest thing happen to me uh, within my first like hour in Jerusalem. So we checked into our hotel and a group of us led um, some of the other pilgrims on a walk over to the church of the Holy Sepulcher. Uh, this is my first time here. So 
we get there and there's no line to go into the tomb where Christ was laid, um, which I suppose never happens. Um, And so we are all able to go in and spend just a little bit of time uh, in this really holy place just before the church closed. Um, But then the night started to get really weird. So we leave the church and I didn't know this, I'm learning all of this, but because there are so many Christian communities uh, that are in the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, primarily the Greek Orthodox, the Catholics, and the Armenian Catholics, they kind of all fight over who owns it. And so the person who, the people who are in charge of opening and closing the church, people who have the key, is actually, it's a Muslim family. And so we leave the church and there's a crowd gathered around waiting for waiting to watch the door closing ceremony. And a man walks out, uh, announces that it's going to be about five minutes. And then he sort of walks over to these steps, lights a cigarette and starts smoking. And uh, me and one of the other pilgrims with America Media, her name's Carly, we strike up a conversation with this man. And he reveals to us that he is the one who has the key and is opening and closing the door. It's him and his brother. They, he's been doing it for 30 years. And it's been in his family for 850 years. So we're chatting. He finishes a cigarette and he invites Carly and myself right up to the front. So we get to watch him climb up a ladder, close the door of the Holy Sepulchre, um, send the ladder back in through a little doggy door, basically. I hope that's not too irreverent. Um, so then, yeah, we we take a photo with him. We talk to him a little bit more. And I, I, I want to thank him for giving us this experience. So I, I ask him, what kind of cigarettes do you smoke? Um, he tells me Marlboro, and I uh, I let him know that I will buy him a pack, and we'll return with some, and we'll we'll share one maybe Tuesday night or so. And he says, wait right here. That's very kind of you, but wait right here. I have a gift for you. So he disappears um, and brings me and Carly back uh, oil from, from the tomb of the Holy Sepulchre, a candle that had been burning in there, um, and rosaries. And I... I guess I was so moved by that generosity, but also when uh, he was explaining his job, he said he felt it was important to to keep peace between these groups because there's no reason for any of us to fight or, you know, any religions to fight because there's one God and he's for all of us. And so, I don't know, that was a wild night that I had that was a little long-winded. That's probably longer than what Sebastian wanted. But anyway, I'm praying for you. Pray for me. Thanks. And I'll see you next week. Joining us in studio is Father George Williams. He's a Jesuit priest and the chaplain at San Quentin State Prison outside of San Francisco in California. Welcome to Jesuitical. Thanks, Ashley. So first, can you just set the scene for this prison? Um, who's housed there? How many? What What are the conditions like? Uh, think of like 19th century old fortress that's run down and decrepit, and you've got basically pretty much San Quentin. We have 4,000 men who are uh, currently there as prisoners. And of them, 720 are housed on our death row, which is where California has all the men on death row housed. Um, and it's, uh, it's it's kind of a forbidding looking place. It's just sort of this f- fortress of a building. Uh, it's kind of crumbling apart. Uh, it's overfull, And yet um, there's also kind of a unlike a lot of prisons, it's kind of a it's kind of a, a good place to be if you're going to be a prisoner because we have great programs. We have um, 
uh, we're in the Bay Area, so there's a lot of people from the area who take interest in what goes on there, and they, they kind of keep things transparent. They keep an eye on the prison, and they become involved in it. So they come in and teach courses. And um, so there's a sort of a spirit about the place that, even though it looks really gloomy and foreboding, it's actually, um, it really is kind of a more humane prison for compared to most of our prisons in this country. How long have you been there? Uh, almost 10 years now. Okay. And, and what does a chaplain do? Are you, are you only administering or serving the Catholic population there, or are you there for everyone? Oh, no. I'm, I'm, we're hired to serve all the people, uh, whatever their religion is. Um, there are, they do hire us by religion. There's five okay. chaplains there. Okay. So there's, I'm the Catholic. Uh, there's a Muslim imam, a rabbi, a, a Protestant chaplain, and a Native American uh, spiritual leader. And our job is to help any of the prisoners whatever their spiritual needs are. So I'm also, <laughs> with the Catholics, I'm also in charge of the uh, Rastafarians, the Mormons, the Jehovah's Witnesses, the Christian scientists, and a group called Odinists, who are a bunch of white guys with swastikas, tattoos, who claim to uh, worship the Norse gods. Okay, that's a diverse bunch. Yeah, it's pretty much what, the spectrum. What does... Oh, and the Wiccans. I, I'm okay. in charge of the Wiccans, too. So it's very Catholic in the... True sense of the word Small C sense? In the universal, yeah. Okay, so what does spiritual counsel look like for that kind of group? Well, I don't actually, um, like, I don't run the Wiccan services or the Odinists or, uh, you know, I I don't pray to Odin uh, with them. However, um, it's kind of like meeting the guys where they are. And a lot of them are just looking for some meaning and purpose in their lives, something to give them hope. And so my feeling is, as St. Ignatius said, you know, you go in their door and lead them out ours. So it's not like I have this secret Jesuit plan to turn them all into Catholics. Um, right. But I kind of do. Yeah. And uh, in prison, like you really, yeah, you um, are going through well, a very <laughs> well, specific I, door. I, yeah. And I want them to come out a door that leads them to freedom and leads them to a relationship with God that's meaningful. That and has such a somebody. different resonance when they're in prison. They, yeah. What what does freedom look like in well, prison? It me- it's funny you say that because I, some of the people I've met in prison are a lot more free than people I've met on the outside because hmm. they're actually dealing with their issues and they're dealing with their 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 the failures of their lives or their addictions in a lot of ways not all of them of course mm-hmm. you can get any kind of drugs you want in there but for a lot of the guys they've i think being labeled by the worst thing you ever did forces you out and forces you to confront your own demons and so a lot of them have really evolved as people and i mean some of them have been there 30 40 years mm-hmm. uh, but there's a lot of wisdom among some of them and um you know, and I think it's wisdom that was bought at a very dear price, you know, the loss of their freedom for many years, but sort of the interior freedom that comes about. Um, one guy on death row, for example, um, he admits what he did. He had had his wife murdered because he was having an affair with another uh, woman, and he, he wanted to get rid of the wife. So he had a contract out on her, and she was murdered, and he got caught and sentenced to death. And he totally admits he was guilty, and he says he believes he really f- deserves the death penalty. And yet at the same time, he's uh, taken vows as a, as a Benedictine oblate, which is kind of a monk, because uh, he said he's already living in this sort of monastic place. Mm. And he's decided to dedicate his life to praying for other people, which I think is amazing, um, given the fact that here's a man who's on California's death row, and yet he's found this purpose, a really rich, a rich deep purpose and meaning in his life yeah. through prayer. So wow. that kind of, to me, that's kind of what, you know, a, a kind of freedom that's paradoxical. Mm-hmm. How do you become a monk in prison? Were you a part of that process? Yeah, yeah. He, he, he found out about this monastery somewhere in Pennsylvania, and 
they have like a third order sort of thing going on and they did it all mm-hmm. by correspondence but he was very mo- he's catholic he um by upbringing mm-hmm. and he wanted to kind of get deeper into his faith and so that he he kind of did that on his own okay what is uh what are your inter- are you doing like one-on-one counseling with people are you doing group sessions what's your day-to-day like it's most the one-on-one is the probably the most powerful the most real um, the most enjoyable part of it we do i do services uh, but they're all in this sort of a dingy old shower room that they yeah. close in with can you, a cage. Can you describe, say, uh, mass in prison? I've read a little bit about it. It's pretty awful. It's yeah. like this um, 20-foot square metal box, and the guys are brought into there, and there are the little wooden benches that are bolted to the floor, and they, they let about 10 or ten to 15 guys in at a time for, for mass. But they're all in a cage. And then I'm outside in my own cage, and we're separated. You're in a cage. Yeah, I have to be in a cage, too. Um, and uh, we're not allowed, like, direct contact with anybody when they're on death row. And so um, so we're, you know, we're all in our cages in, in this old shower room that's just dingy and dark and noisy. Uh, so it's not exactly a, a great place, but it can also, but what I find is uh, the kind of prayers that go on there are really deep and the things that the guys bring up and share are profound uh, despite that sort of awful, ugly environment. Yeah, wow. For people on death row or... I don't know. I guess in California, I know there's now a moratorium, mm-hmm. but even before that, I don't think, you know, there were that many executions happening. Recently. No, I mean we we keep sentencing people to death, yeah. so we have the largest so, death row, but yeah, <clears throat> only thirteen men have been executed. So I was going to ask, you know, how do you, you know, spirit give spiritual counsel to someone to prepare them for death? Um, but it seems it maybe it's even harder to give that counsel when you're kind of in this suspended place where yeah. you're condemned but right kind it's of sort of open-ended so what does what does that look like well what it, it's interesting you say that because a lot of times what they'll talk about is like they'll they'll wake up each day with the realization that society said they don't deserve to live anymore so it's almost like it's like a psychological burden that they carry of having been literally condemned mm-hmm. um and so and they know that there's very slim chance that they'll actually be executed uh, but I think it's just the knowledge of having been, it's the ultimate rejection, basically. Yeah. You know, it's like, you don't deserve to live. And, and they carry that. Um, so I think that's probably where I would, in terms of the counseling, um, have them help them sort of find purpose and meaning in their lives, despite that huge condemnation that they've received from society, realizing, say, God doesn't condemn you, even if society has. Mm-hmm. Are there any resources um, within the Jesuit tradition that you find are helpful in those conversations? Well, for one, I just think the practical nature of our spirituality, of just being able to go into places where nobody else goes and work with what's there um, and meet people where they are. I think that's that's the key. But a lot of the guys really enjoy the spiritual exercises and mm-hmm. practice um, various forms of, um, of that in their cells, or they'll do the examine. So there are they're very interested in St. Ignatius because, you know, he was a soldier. He was also in and, in and out of jail as a kid. <laughs> he spent, and the Dominicans put him in jail a few times. So they kind of relate to his rowdiness early on. Um, and I think just the fact that he was real and practical, and he wasn't like some sort of plaster saint somewhere. He was just a real flesh and blood person that they can relate to him. Yeah. One 
One thing people, you know, often say is, you know, Jesus is the most famous recipient of the death penalty. Mm -hmm. Um, And other people react against that saying, wait a second, there's a big difference. He was innocent. (laughs) Um, But do you find do you find that to be a a helpful place to start with people in introducing them to Jesus or bringing them closer into relationship with Jesus? You mean for the the prisoners themselves? Mm -hmm, Yeah. Oh, yeah. Even they haven't often thought of it in those terms. Mm -hmm. um, Jesus. Oh, yeah. He was on death row, too. Um, one man, I remember he had, um, found his way into Catholicism. Um, and he had had a, he told me one time, he said, you know, father, I've let, I've led a really bad life. And he, um, had done a lot of damage and done some pretty terrible crimes, but he had this real affinity for St. Dismas, who was uh, the good thief, the the one who was crucified next to Jesus, who was responsible for his crimes and was guilty of Mm -hmm. them and was also put to death. But this man on death row could relate to that man on death row very very intimately and he had kind of a devotion to him yeah in a sense he was kind of like a living dismas himself yeah um, because he was one of the guys who would say something like you know i have lived a bad life i've done i'm responsible i've done bad things and yet i still want god's mercy i still am seeking god's forgiveness and so it's like the man on the cross thanks to jesus you know he was the only one promised a place in heaven and i know this guy dennis uh, passed away two years ago and i'm mm. If there's anybody in heaven, I believe it's Dennis, despite what he did. Yeah, how do you how do you keep that hope? You're you're confronted daily with, you know, truly. I don't know if you would use the word evil to describe what you're confronted with, um, but really some of the darkest things humanity can do. Yeah, yeah. Um, and yet you're supposed to be the face of mercy and forgiveness for these folks <laughs> yeah right I how guess. do you how do you do that uh that's a good question well what better place to do it than the darkest place in california <laughs> um yeah I, I think it's really it becomes so real there because uh, i am confronted with evil every day but it's not it's not the evil of these men who are in prison now yes they've done evil things but they they're not necessarily evil in and of themselves a few of them are but the, the the thing that is most disturbing about death row it's not the people in the system it's the system itself that's evil because the system represents our failure as society to show compassion to to show um, mercy <clears throat> or to help people even before they get in situations where they become criminals to get decent educations and health care all those things that these men were almost all denied and on top of it all is the racism that is really evident there because the majority of the people on death row are men of, men of color um and California is much more diverse than that. And yet the racism is one of the reasons so many people are in prison. So that's where the evil is. It's not in these guys themselves. How do you reconcile your place in that system? Well, we're all complicit, aren't we? Um, and yet, you know, I've thought about, well, I could stand outside the prison and hold up a sign and condemn it. But um, if I did that, I wouldn't get to go in and be able to minister to these men. So I think it's it's sort of like, you know, I was in the military before I became a Jesuit, and it's like I didn't necessarily agree with everything the military did, but I think it's like you can be in a system and not necessarily agree with everything about it, but still see the value of serving in it. And so that's how it is with the prison system. I don't, personally, I'm against prisons in general. I think I wish we, there would, I hope someday we abolish all of them. But for the time being, they're a reality in our culture, our world. And so as long as they're going to be there, we have an obligation as church to be there too. You mentioned that you would be in favor of um, abolishing prisons. Mm-hmm. I don't think we're anywhere close to that oh, no, yet. No, no. Um, but uh, Pope Francis, uh, two years ago, mm-hmm. did change the catechism to mm-hmm. say that the death penalty is inadmissible. Right. Um, 
So I, I'm guessing you welcomed that change. Yeah, I mean, I think the death penalty is one of those life issues that Catholics who claim to be pro-life are really good at ignoring because while there are other aspects of the pro-life movement there, um, I get really stressed all the time. I find it's really a kind of a, it's been an upward, uphill battle trying to get the death penalty on the map because it doesn't matter if a person's innocent or guilty, that matters that they're human beings. And if we're talking about killing them, then that's kind of a, a, a right to life issue, I think, yeah. at its very basis. So, I do you was, have friends or family that are for the death penalty? And how do you try to oh, well, use I, your or talk about I, your Yeah, I, mean, I can tell there are guys on death row who are in favor of the death penalty. <laughs> okay. Usually for the guy in the cell next to them <laughs> because they feel like, well, he did a terrible crime. He deserves it. Yeah. Um, and people, some of the people I work with are in favor of it. Um, it's not that we're trying to say these people don't deserve it necessarily, or that, you know, we don't want to deny the pain that they cause to the victims. But um, the bottom line is that they're, we're, we're talking about human beings, and if we want to say that the lives of their victims had meaning and value, then we, um, I think we cheapen that by killing the people who commit crimes. Yeah. Well, one of the things that the United States does very well is keeping this out of people's yeah. sight and mind. Right. Um, so it's easy to write write off prisoners as something less than human or just not not something I have to care about. People so how, don't want to think about it. Yeah. Can yeah. you you and you see it up close every day. What mm -hmm. what do what does being on death row, what does being having a life sentence do to the human spirit? Well, it destroys it. Um I think one of the things that Pope Francis said that kind of got ignored in over the years too is that even the uh, life without parole sentencing is is inhumane and yeah, cruel. death penalty by another means it is it's it's yeah. it's actually worse i think it's more inhumane than mm -hmm. the death penalty itself because rather than just kill somebody in 15 minutes we kill them over slowly over 40 years um, and we take away any hope um, that to me is a much more dehumanizing cruel system uh, than the death penalty itself for that matter because i mean while it's wrong to kill people at least you're not torturing people for years and years and years and giving them no hope and no reason for existence. So I think in addition to getting rid of the death penalty, the next step would be to get rid of life without parole. Now, there are people who can never get out of prison. We have serial killers. In fact, some, several of my parishioners are serial killers. And one of them always says to me, uh, now, Father, don't do anything I wouldn't do. And uh, it's like, well, you know, you killed like 30 people. You set the bar really low for me. Yeah. Um, but somebody like him, you know, he's he should never get out of prison because he's dangerous. Um, although he's like 90 years old now, so he probably wouldn't be too dangerous. But um, though th they represent a tiny, tiny fraction of the people we have in prison, maybe 1%. And there's no reason why we can't keep people like that um, locked up and safely away from society without having even be prisony. I mean, they could be in a, in a secure facility that is not uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. There's no reason why people couldn't be kept relatively comfortable and yet society be kept safe. Our prisons don't have to be as cruel as they, as they often are. Yeah. What, um, I would say I'm certainly no, I'm guilty of this myself, but Visit the Imprisoned is one of the corporal works of mercies and maybe the most neglected one. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't know. Why, why do you think it's important for Catholics to maybe take that one up? I think it's important because Jesus said, if you don't do it, you're going to go to hell. <laughs> uh, that's one reason. Mm -hmm. um, and I think people are afraid of prisons and people don't think about it. Um, so, and it's, one, it's so unpleasant that people kind of put it out of their minds. It's sort of like you don't really think about hospitals a lot either until you have to go to one or you have somebody there. 
So there's different ways of being involved. And I think people don't all have to go to a penitentiary. But if people don't want to do that kind of prison ministry, you can work with victims. You can work with families of victims. You can work with people who are in law enforcement who have to deal with these issues every day. You can work with families of prisoners. I mean, there's there's all kinds of ways that you can you can do prison ministry without actually going into prisons. Mm. And then there's also, without giving people too much of an out, I think the reality is that we're all prisoners in a sense of of time and age. And people, if you live long enough, and I know my own family, my um, stepmother is dying and she has Alzheimer's. She's a prisoner. She's lost all her freedom. I think we tend to do the same thing with elderly people that we do with prisoners. So we push them in away and we kind of forget about them. So I think one way to visit the imprisoned is to visit the imprisoned elderly person who is in a nursing home or is living alone and just doesn't you know, is little by little losing their freedom. I think that would be another kind of important way to do, to fulfill that commandment of Jesus. Yeah. How has how has your many years of work in prison um, affected your relationship with God, with other people? Well, I think it's deepened my relationship with God and with other people. But it's also, you know, I did my doctoral dissertation on burnout, and I'm <laughs> no, and I'm noticing a lot of the um, this sort of a compassion fatigue. Yeah. that is inevitable when you're dealing with the sort of constant suffering. So I think um, for me, I just being aware that having been doing this for about 26 years now, I, I probably need to do something different for a mm. little while. I think the nice thing about prison ministry is that in this country, you really can't throw a rock without hitting a jail or a prison somewhere. So it's not, it's not like I could always be involved in the work in some way, but the intensity of it is, is very draining. And um, so I, I notice in myself the spirit saying, you know, it's time to start thinking of other things. Yeah. You know? What were your, you know, prayer practices or other self-care that well, what, kept what I, you going for uh, so many years? We, to be honest with you, the, the thing that keeps me going is yoga. Because oh. I find that um, that really centering and it sort of brings body and taking care of body and spirit together. And uh, in terms of stress reduction, it's really important. I mean, we have, we have yoga in the prison for the prisoners, but um, in my own personal practice, there's that. And of course, all that all that stuff we learned in the Jesuit uh, formation mm-hmm. helps too. Uh, <laughs> so That stuff. <laughs> that, all, all that Catholic stuff, yeah. That, that's been really important in yeah. terms of having a, a spirituality, having a practice, you know, mass, the sacraments, um, having, I have the best spiritual director in the world um, out in Berkeley, and, you know, she kicks my butt, and she just kind of keeps me <laughs> On, on track so um that's uh, things like that are really important sort of if because if you can you know it's like any other thing if you don't take care of yourself you're not going to be in a position to care for other people right one question i had is so you know most people myself included get our you know picture of prison from things like orange is the new black or Shawn- right. shawshank redemption we mm-hmm. don't really know what it's like so i'm wondering like if you could speak for some of the people you work with or just for yourself for like what they would want people on the outside to know about what life is really like there? What- well, I think the trouble with those programs is that there's sort of, there's elements of truth in them, but most of the time it's exaggerated. And um, it would be hard to make a very compelling TV show out of boredom yeah. and loneliness. And I think that's what people in prison experience a lot of boredom and they experience a lot of loneliness and a lot of sense of rejection. And so that doesn't really make for a great script. You know, but the reality is um, life in prison is not, um, there's not a laugh track to it, that's for sure. But it's just sort of 99% boredom and then 1% like fear. Yeah. 
violence. Like your previous job, maybe in the army? <laughs> yeah, kind of. Yeah. yeah. Air Force. <laughs> oh, Air Force. Sorry. <laughs> I, yeah, I was afraid I'd, I'd never want to be a grunt. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us. I do have one final question that okay. I have to ask sure. all of my guests. Mm -hmm. uh, if you could canonize someone, living or dead, Catholic or not, who would it be and why? Oh, it have to be Jim Martin. Oh, come on. You can do better than that. <laughs> All right. Make your case. <laughs> did, did he pay you to say that? <laughs> of course he did. Yeah. He bribed me. No, Jim and I have been friends since the novitiate. I just mm -hmm. think he's a, just a great, wonderful guy. And um, I admire the work that he's doing, um, especially LGBT issues. Mm -hmm. You know, and in prisons, that's one of the issues that doesn't come up a lot. Um, a lot of uh, gay and transgender inmates in the prison system. And so talk about being marginalized, but they're even more. So I think um, he'd be one or Dorothy Day. I mean, I think she's always been my favorite, cat, uh, you know, 20th century Catholic. So Okay. Well, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you. I look forward to see what you do next. Thank you. <laughs> All right. Thanks, Ashley. some housekeeping, I want to recommend a fantastic prayer resource for Lent. Our colleague Tucker Redding, uh, whose name you might recognize from the credits, has created Imagine, a guide to Jesuit prayer. It's a 10-part miniseries that guides you through a form of prayer called Ignatian Contemplation, where you use your imagination to interact with various scenes from Scripture. Uh, it's a great podcast, and you can find it by subscribing to The Word Feed. So search for The Word wherever you get your favorite podcasts and subscribe to The Word and you'll find Imagine in your feed. Jesuitical is produced by Sebastian Gomes. Our editor is Noah Levinson. Faith Formation provided by Father Eric Sundra. Production help from Izzy Seneschal and Tucker Redding. You can follow us on Twitter at Jesuitical Show. You can find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash groups slash Jesuitical. Please subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your favorite podcasts and leave us a review. Jesuitical is recorded in the William J. Lowshirt Studio at American Media in New York City. For American Media, I'm Ashley McKinless. We'll see you next week.